0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Latter-day Struggles. This is Valerie, your host, and this is...
1: Nathan, your (laughs) co-host.
0: Your other host. I don't have a title. (laughs) (laughs) You're a co-host. Okay, it's so good to be with you guys once again today. We come at you uh, once again with more content about the Latter-day Saint faith crisis survey that we have been going through. What you're about to hear today is part four of a five-part series. And so by the end of this week, we should be all the way through this pretty meaty analysis of the LDS Faith Crisis Survey. So why don't we go ahead, Nathan, if I'm going to put you on the spot, if yes. that's okay. Will you talk us through, just for those folks that are popping in for the first time, what were episodes one, two, and three, just as a review?
1: So your first episode was just sort of an overview of the of the problem. In other words, there's this clear faith crisis going on in the church, and a number of members of the church who were not officially commissioned to do so on their own volition decided to do a survey and find out what was going on, and they created a research project, a packet of qualitative research that they did on behalf of the church uh, to explain to the church leaders what was the source of the faith crisis and what might be some suggestions to get through it. Uh, So that was the overview. And then in the first couple of episodes, we started breaking down the elements of the faith crisis. Uh, We talked about what are some of the things that trigger it um, and what are some of the concerns that people have. And then we also talked about uh, some what they call their stages of faith crisis, at least according to the LDS church, which includes starting with people who are very active and very true blue, uh, first half of life, fully committed Orthodox Mormons. How those Mormons are then often triggered by learning things about church history or church culture and they become somewhat disillusioned and from their disillusionment they often take one of two tracks which is to either distance themselves from the church completely or to stay active in the church but they're still quite emotionally distant from the church they're sort of just kind of going through the motions. Um, And so in my mind, that's sort of the summary of of those uh, episodes. And what we're going to do today is we're going to actually talk about one of those points back on the stages of of the Mormon faith crisis, which is what what causes the disillusionment? What what is the triggers? What are the triggers? Excuse me. Uh, But more than what are the triggers, we're going to talk about what is the internal process that happens to the members of the church as they are transitioning from a true blue Mormon to a sort of disillusioned Mormon.
0: So, we're going to go deeply into basically this phenomena that these researchers discovered by listening to all of these ethnographic stories that so many of these people that participated in this survey were sharing.
1: Over 3,000. Over
0: 3,000. So, they listened and they learned. And they started noticing a common theme and what they call this is a cycle a perpetual cycle of disaffection and so what this means of course is that every single person that went through or is going through faith crisis is of course going to be having a unique situation because they are a unique human being however what you'll notice when you do or if you read or if you're a nerd and are into research is that what starts to happen is you start noticing thematic elements that come up over and over and over and over again. And that's when you start knowing because you're finding a phenomenon. And once you find a phenomenon, that is the beginning point to where you can start actually looking at a solution because you actually finally can put your finger on what the problem is. And so we're going to walk you through what these researchers call the perpetual cycle of disaffection. Which is the experience that many, many, many people had over and over and over again. And the reason I am I feel strongly about this particular episode, you guys, is because what this um heightens really powerfully is how incredibly traumatic and painful this is in the lives of, of a lot of us, not just because of what happens through the discovery process which we went into quite a bit in the last episode but because of the actual impact it has on our most important relationships which is our relationships with our own families with our own partners with our own parents with our own children this faith crisis cuts very very deeply into the core of our own most intimate relationships and that's why it needs to be um, handled with a lot of love and care and and it needs to be looked at and not uh, looked over anymore okay that's my little soapbox on how why this matters this is just me sitting here being a trauma therapist having a really soft heart for people that suffer okay i'm gonna turn it over to you because i'm kind of getting a little teary here (laughs) this really this really gets to me okay
1: and i think the other reason it gets to us is because we've experienced it yeah personally i mean it, Mm -hmm. it, it definitely hits home with what we've experienced so again we talked about the, the True Blue Mormon, we talked about the disaffected Mormon, someone who has entered into that faith crisis. And what we're, so we're kind of backtracking a little bit in what's happening in that transition period. What is taking the True Blue Mormon from True Blue to disaffection? And there's about uh, eight uh, identifiable factors here, five, eight identifiable steps in that transition. So the first the thing they talk about is what they call the initiation. The initiation is simply you hear something or learn something about the church that seems a little off and you maybe didn't know it before or maybe you've heard a slightly different version of it and active members hear these things about history and theology or culture from perhaps a disaffected member or a non-member and they don't know exactly what to do with it uh and i know as a missionary i heard things all the time and for the most part i was just taught to blow it off because
0: They're lying. They're lying. That's right. They're
1: they're just out to destroy the church. Right. Uh, If somebody's angry, you can't trust what they say. Uh, But you hear this initiation phase and then eventually a member starts to do their own research. They they hear something enough or they hear something from a source that they do trust and they say, all right, I'm going to look into this a little bit. Well, unfortunately, when they get into the search phase, not a lot of stuff On the approved church websites, uh, touch on some of these really difficult issues, Uh, or if they do touch on them, they touch on them really gingerly and really lightly. And so, what ends up happening is is that members read on church-approved websites or on Fair Mormon, uh, which are websites that are you know supportive of the church, but they really get the sense they're not still not getting the whole story. They're still not getting all the truth. They're not hearing the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so then they are forced to kind of look for answers on Google, the Internet or, quote unquote, uncorrelated church church sources.
0: Okay, so step one of the perpetual cycle of disaffection is the initiation phase, which is where someone exposes a true believing Mormon to something that is unfamiliar or, or uncomfortable. Then they go into the search. Most of the time they start in the correlated world. Most of the time they don't feel satisfied and oftentimes they actually go to Google or elsewhere to act, to justify their own standing beliefs. That's the thing that's fascinating about this is most of the time when we go through this perpetual, the cycle, we're actually looking to um, be our own little mini apologetics person. We want mm. to believe our own um, version of truth because it's the foundation upon which we have built our whole Testimony, our whole identity, our family structure, our eternal salvation. So we're looking for justification for what we already believe to be true. The problem is that what's what happens is that generally speaking, then we hit what is uh, the researchers call step three, which is the troubling discovery phase. Okay, so the troubling discovery phase the page here. The troubling discovery page is where these active members find <clears throat> that what they heard from the gate was actually true
1: or mostly true or
0: mostly true yeah Yeah. okay i'm going to just read a little bit here it says many believing members disregard disturbing historical and doctrinal claims as quote anti-mormon lies boy if i had a nickel for every time i heard that as a kid (laughs) (laughs) um okay sorry i digress okay so these are these are these claims are called anti-mormon lies and have no and they believe that they have no merit or exaggerations to the point of lunacy However, while there are plenty of unfounded claims against the church, many, many, and it says here in the report, many of the most prominent anti-Mormon claims have been verified by faithful church historians as having merit. That's where you get the dagger to the heart. (laughs) (laughs) That is where we all fall into the vortex of the beginnings of crisis, because we really had this foundation that we believed was firm and I'll be darned if what we've discovered is the things that we thought were heinous lies to the point of lunacy are in fact, by and large, not lies at all. Yeah. Okay. So that's um, stage step three, which is the troubling discovery phase. And this of course is where we enter into a great deal of, of betrayal trauma. This is traumatic because this is, um, this is discovery for the most part. It's not it's not disclosure, right? So right. as humans um, and as institutions run by humans, we are all going to be making mistakes. And as soon as we make those mistakes, if we can come forward and um, own our mistakes, most of the time we can mitigate a lot of the pain and suffering. However, when we don't own those mistakes and we actually perpetuate um, the, we cover these mistakes up and sometimes do so for, Many generations, the sense that we experience of betrayal is intense. It's psychologically intense, it's spiritually intense, it can actually be physiologically intense. Many people talk even about this making them physically ill when they come to discover that their firm foundation is not actually firm at all. Something else I want to just um, point out is that most of the time, our betrayal is directly correlated with the degree of trust that we had in the person or the institution that has, in fact, been proven um, to be betraying.
1: And it probably affects your ability to trust them going forward. The the deeper the betrayal, the less trust going forward you would have.
0: This is so devastating. And the reason um, there's so many reasons, but one of them that's kind of emerging for me right now, as I think about this, Nathan, is that this is when people do, in fact, um, become so upset that they do throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater right and the reason why is because it starts it starts one down a path in the deepest parts of betrayal which is if i can't believe this what else are you lying to me about right
1: and that's a big deal it's
0: a really really big deal and the thing that's so tragic about this when people or institutions um don't have that moral integrity to own up as things um you know as they make these mistakes is um it it it's a really big problem because, say, just in the case of our church, our church does, in fact, house a lot of beauty and goodness. Mm-hmm. And yet there's no space for beauty and goodness that we don't have the eyes to see that when we are so incredibly wounded by the by the betrayal that we feel. And in some ways it's actually multiple layers of betrayal because it's been systematic. It's been throughout the whole system. It's, it's actually a, it's world correlated betrayal it's in fact very much a correlated <laughs> movement right? right
1: yeah yeah so you know I've talked about this before but for me the the, the first real dagger that I remember was learning about the blacks and the priesthood um, I had always been taught that it was by revelation I was always taught that, that you know Brigham Young made a very inspired decision uh, until it was pointed out to me that in the same talk where he suggested that blacks should not hold the priesthood, that black members of the church should not be allowed to go to the temple. He also suggested they should be uh, have their heads cut off in a form of blood atonement, that their children should be put to death in a form of blood atonement, um, that their children would be sterile uh, and that interracial marriage was a sin.
0: Wait, can you back up a second? I'm confused and maybe I was just spacing. What was the condition whereby they needed to have their heads cut off? So
1: any interracial oh, marriage, marriage,
0: okay, okay. any
1: interracial marriage was such a heinous sin that it could only be atoned through blood atonement and that the members of those families would need to have their heads cut off. Gosh. Now, when I heard that, I thought there is no way Brigham Young said that. There's no way. And
0: an anti-Mormon lie. Yeah, it's an anti-Mormon <laughs> lie.
1: OK, because, hey, the prophet is infallible. And according to the doctrine of covenants, we listened to all of their words and commandments. And there's no way Brigham Young would have said that. Well, it turns out he did. I have the document. I have a copy of the document. It was so painful for me. I obtained a copy of the speech that he gave, and he really did say those things. And so then I'm thinking to myself, what else have I been lied to about? Mm-hmm. And what else have the prophets said that I can't trust? Mm-hmm. It, it is so disgusting that we have accepted that speech as the basis for the priesthood ban that it shattered my faith and not just Brigham but in all the prophets it's like okay well clearly the prophets are human and make horrific mistakes and it was a shattering moment for me
0: so Nathan stay with that for just a second and talk us through how are you navigating that from that moment on where you still hold on to something else also, not just the shattered part, but there's a part of you that wants to still believe something. Absolutely. Tell me more about that.
1: Well, I mean, and for me, what it really amounted to is that I had to change my paradigm, which is that I believe that, and you've said this, you're the one who kind of formulated this for me, which was, was really good. I believe that these men had prophetic moments. They had prophetic traits, but they were not always profits. And I learned to accept that. And I can search for myself when something is said that feels very true and feels very good. For instance, I do think Brigham Young was inspired to lead the Saints West, but I think he also did a lot of bad things. And I do believe that God can use people who are human and make a lot of mistakes to still do good things. And so for me, that becomes a, a point of encouragement, which is like, okay, if God can take a a Western frontier guy who was clearly very violent in his view of how to handle sin and how to handle punishment in the church, and still do some prophetic things, maybe he can use me in ways. And so I, I, I have turned it on its head. But I also will say, and I'll say it out loud, that I have learned that you can't trust everything every prophet has ever said. I have to discern for myself.
0: It's like a moment when one truly has to wake up and grow up and recognize that their own relationship with God is truly their own. Yes. You cannot hand it off to any bigger, stronger, wiser other. Yeah. And that relationship with with God, with Jesus Christ is truly a one-on-one kind of experience mediated on the good moments by an institution, but also some of our greatest and deepest growth is going to be in our wrestle with and the grief process that we experience in wishing that the church could be what it wants us to think it is. Yeah. And and recognizing that it not is not that and <laughs> that it never can be. And quite frankly, it was never actually supposed never meant to, be. to
1: be. Exactly. Yes. So everything that is said needs to be held up in our own lens of truth. Yes. And there were apostles who opposed Brigham Young when he said that there were apostles that said, I do not agree with it and they fought against him. They ultimately lost, but but they they opposed him. And And kudos to those apostles. I wish I hope if I had been there, I would have been one of those.
0: And yeah, they they caved ultimately. They
1: caved, yeah, but I would hope that I would have been one that said that's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. So yeah. okay, let's um thank you for that. That's nice. <laughs> okay, um let's move on. Number one, just to review. Number one, the step one in this cycle of disaffection is initiation, where there's something that is exposed to us. Then we go on the correlated search. We come up wanting, then we move into the uncorrelated search, and that's uh, step number three, which is the troubling discovery phase which moves us into active trauma because of the experience that we have of betrayal, which is directly correlated with the degree of trust that we had engendered in us through our growing up years as true believing members of the church. Okay. Then from there, we go to... (laughs) Okay. Oh, sorry. Okay. Then we go to... I don't know. Then we go to um, what I consider to be probably the one of the more challenging parts to talk about. So after the betrayal, we move into step five, which is what ends up happening in the personal lives of the individuals who are already going through an active trauma because of the crisis of faith that they're having, because of the trust that has been broken between themselves and their church. So this is um, very sad and I'll see how well I do in getting through it because this makes me upset. (laughs) So it says here, whether it's our innate desire to defend the church or our desire to avoid information that contradicts our standard LDS narrative, the most common LDS response to an active member posing difficult questions is to be defensive and to dismiss their suffering and pain okay so what we're basically saying to distill this down a little bit more is when someone is in this experience of crisis because of the trust and faith that has been betrayed and they tell somebody about it generally speaking rather than being treated with love and compassion and empathy about how terrible this must be for them to be going through this thing by themselves their closest loved ones family members ward members and friends generally speaking treat them with disdain and harshness. Some of what the people that were interviewed said, was said to them in response to their own vulnerable sharing of what they were going through were some of these statements. What covenants are you breaking? You must want to sin. These are all the reasons that are given to us when we go through, when, we're, when we expose um, our very real and raw experience of crisis. Here's more quotes. Who has offended you? Or are you clinically depressed? I find that one especially offensive. That, you know, if somebody's having a, a question, then somehow that, it's.
1: That's how you diagnose depression. Right. When you have a question.
0: Right. <laughs> As if depression is something negative, anyways. There's just so much wrong with that.
1: Yeah, true. Okay.
0: Um, okay. Sorry. We, we digress. <laughs> okay. The next one is um, you're not worthy to be a parent if you are questioning this. Ouch. Next is this is from a parent to a child. I must have raised you poorly. That's some shame. Next quote, I would rather see you dead than see you lose your testimony. You guys, I I know that sounds dramatic. And yet I actually have heard my own clients talk about, this is true, somebody, and I don't even think this is going to probably sound very unique. You guys may have heard this before. And the fact that you um, maybe have heard this is once again, just evidence of the, how big of a problem this is. I've heard, um, someone say that their father said that um, if you come home from your mission um, before the two years is up, it better be in a body bag. Mm. (sighs) Okay. Next is um, stop reading and thinking about these historical issues. Another quote is your concerns are anti-Mormon lies and meritless. That might be a number one. That's probably the biggest one I always heard. Um, The next one is it's your fault that you're struggling. Nothing has been misrepresented Um, another one that I find very mean is your IQ has just dropped 30, 30 points for questioning these things. And another one, um, this is the last one I'll read to you is your discontent is part of a latter day inner cleansing of the church. Hmm. So this is, um, all manner of blaming, shaming and gaslighting is what's going on here. And, um, it's very sad. Why don't we just can we spend a minute on this, Nath? Because I feel mm-hmm. like this is a big deal. What does this bring up in you as far as like when someone is having an honest and legitimate crisis and this is how they're treated? Um, this is a big deal. This is a big problem that needs to be worked on in our church community.
1: Yeah, well, but the problem is this. when When there is a problem, the easiest solution is to identify the other person as the problem. Right. So, for instance, you hear what I have heard is when people were talking priesthood about a member of their family who left the church, they would always qualify it with, well, he stopped reading his scriptures and he stopped saying his prayers. And then the natural consequences that he left the church, they want to they want to be able to put it into a very nice box. Why did this happen? It happened because you made some mistake. You stopped being good. You wanted to sin. You have a physical or emotional problem that you haven't dealt with, if I can blame you for the problem, then I don't have to look at the problem myself. I don't have to pretend that in my own happy little perfect um, Shangri-La world, that there's actually a problem.
0: Well, and I think too, well, two things come to my mind. I remember when we were studying uh, the the points of a spiritually abusive system, one of the big take-home memories i have of reading and studying that and going through that with you guys here on the podcast is that if you if you state the problem you become the problem.
1: Right, because you, because right here in River City we don't want trouble.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's from The Music Man. The Music Man. Look at you. You're but the, so
1: But the point is yeah. is that is that <laughs> you have to be the problem. Well, right? yes, it's its pool has been brought to, to River City and pool is the source of the problem.
0: You guys are going to all have to stop this podcast and go watch Music Man because <laughs> he's just full of metaphors today. So the deal, though, is is that if one individual has a problem, it's much simpler to extricate them from the system than to actually have to acknowledge that this is a systemic sickness, right. and so it's very inconvenient for, um, you know, for a system to be so sick that it itself has to be looked at. That's a big, that's a big deal. And that's what this, this faith crisis study is actually trying to articulate is we're not saying this is simple. This is, this is a systemic big deal. Mm -hmm. And yet at the same time, those individuals who are bringing it to light are not in fact the problem, right? They are actually trying to come up with a solution. They're having honor they're being um, diligent. They're actually showing a high degree of integrity. And so for someone to have these integrity-based experiences and bring them to their, their nearest and dearest and then be treated um, with blame, shame, or some variation of gaslighting, um, it, it's a big deal. This needs to be pattern interrupted and corrected as, at a systemic level as well. Do you want Do you have anything more you want to say or do you want to move mm. on to step six? is that me still okay all right so once we hit this harsh treatment stage it it moves immediately into this is a a, seems like a very logical next step which is a a process of distancing um what that what this means is people are so wounded first it's like the one-two punch remember they're hurt already because their worlds have been turned upside down by this institution and then they go into their own safe places into their with their partners, with their parents, their children, their friends, their ward members, and they're treated with so much disdain or fear, which is all. This is all really just based in fear, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the essence right. of this is is all of the blaming, shaming and gaslighting. is just because these the folks that hear us talk like this, it terrifies them because right. imagine for a moment, if it were true, if it were true, <laughs> then they, too, have to sink into this abyss of disorientation. Yeah. And then they have to go through the faith crisis too. And so what none of us understand in those moments is that's exactly what they actually do need to do so that the entire institution can become finally healed. Mm-hmm. But they don't want that. They want it to stay the way it is. They like um, the defense strategies that have been activated at the institutional level. And so they kind of use these party lines um, to make us feel like we're the problem. And so what do we do is the tendency is to to distance ourselves. Um, we, we don't want to we feel like we are um, vulnerable and that the, that they don't understand us
1: and we can't trust them. And, and we, we can. Yes.
0: Right. Because it does in some ways feel like we're all we're operating in two sort of different levels of consciousness. And so it becomes very, very challenging to have dialogue or to have intimacy um, or to continue to um, stay connected with folks like this. the The problem, though, is that this isn't really a tenable solution. Because these are our families, these are our friends, these are our neighbors, and yet at the same time, it is a temptation to distance ourselves. the um, The Faith Crisis Report actually says, "I'm going to go ahead and read this because I found this fascinating." It says here that the um, that this distancing phase, a piece of this distancing phase, is this is often aggravated by aggravated by the struggling members' overreactions to the beliefs that they have been treated harshly and unjustly persecuted for simply asking questions. And disclosing historically accurate information. Now, I'm feeling compelled to qualify that because I would dare say that that probably is sometimes true. Maybe they are in fact overreacting and just paranoid, or on the other hand, maybe they are in fact being treated with a great deal of blame and shame. In each case, I, I think we need to respect um, the fear that both parties are feeling. I guess I can speak for myself here. Um, on the on the topic of overreacting i i feel like with my own experience because i'm of course not just doing this quietly i'm i'm doing this with thousands of people listening to me at this point in time um i i would be um lying if i didn't say that i felt a little paranoid sometimes you know with my family or with ward members i don't know what they're thinking it may be that they're not thinking anything or maybe they even respect me that i'm having the voice that they don't dare to have but in my own mind's eye um, because my fear is big and because I'm in a system that has taught me to be fearful of this kind of integrity, um, I am a little paranoid, and I might in some ways be overreacting a little bit to what I'm assuming people are thinking about me for the crisis, you know for the, the the experience I'm having. and maybe I'm not being fair to them out there, and maybe they would be more loving if I would let them. But I distance myself because I feel so misunderstood. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's
1: based on their real reactions. I mean, yeah, you know, they overreact. We overreact sorry okay so step seven is this idea of anger magnification which basically is just kind of saying we get into this cycle we got betrayed we discovered we were betrayed we're hurt people that we thought we could trust turn around and hurt us and so we get more and more angry members in faith crisis who believe they have been wrongly punished for following the truth become more incensed at the church Uh, and also from this damage in their family relationships. Now, this is a good, another quote here. I'm going to read this because this is really well put. It says, when members and leaders make broad statements that deny the validity of the issues in the faith crisis, struggling members become even more despondent as active members. And when we hear things like there is no problem, we continue to struggle more and more. Church leaders should say. Now, this is this is a a quote from one of the respondents. He said, Church leaders ought to say, We acknowledge your pain and your concerns over this problem. And here are some ways that we can try to help you. But instead, what church members hear is, there is no problem, you are the problem. This is your fault for making it a problem. And it must be you that needs to repent. So this cycle is magnified. This cycle of blaming, this cycle of anger uh, is magnified by the responses from family members and church leaders
0: can i just say something right here and um kind of occurring to me as i'm listening to you is that one of the reasons why i think people become so incredibly angry at that the church is because um, in some cases they rightly attribute the falling apart of their family to the church right and it's like this whole thing happened because i acknowledge something that i that needs to be acknowledged on a grand scale and in so doing it's ruined my marriage it's ruined my ability to go on family vacations i actually had a correspondence with with somebody who said thank you for writing you know for the podcast but what he said was he said people leaving the church in my family has poisoned my family's ability to be together poisoned my family. And I don't know that he meant he was, I don't believe that he was an instigator of the poison. I think he just said, it's kind of ruined our ability to be a close family. Now, that is not what any institution that is trying to represent our our returning or trying to be more like God, that is not what an institution is supposed to be doing. If it's doing that, we need to work on it. We need to do better.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: I I agree. It's it, the families and the members of the church need to be trained a little bit on how to handle this when somebody doesn't see things the same way.
0: Well, it's actually we've been trained to I can't remember if it's on this one or the other one but there was Um, In one place, it says when somebody is walking out the proverbial door, we have been trained as Orthodox members to uh, slam it behind them as quickly as possible (laughs) and to make up excuses to justify why we're in and what they must be going through because they're out. That is is so problematic. That really hurts my heart a lot. So we've got to work on this.
1: So finally, um, the last step here, step number eight, is this what they call the completed cycle of disaffection. So as we mentioned in the previous podcast, in most cases, the outcome of this cycle is one of two things. Either members leave the church altogether and oftentimes abandon their faith in God because they've abandoned their faith in the church. Uh, They see those two things as interconnected Um, or they're able to hold on to certain elements of their belief process and they try to stay active in the church but they're very emotionally distant they're they're just not engaged like they used to be Um, and and that is the outcome when they feel like there's nobody they can talk to or trust
0: well and i think that in in the spirit of trying to stay in their own integrity they do feel sometimes like they have to make an excruciating choice Mm -hmm. like an excruciating choice do i you know do i stay in this? in this system that doesn't welcome me, that I don't feel like is being honest with me so that I can have my tribe around me? Mm -hmm. Or do I leave and feel like I'm betraying my, you know, and I'm alone? I mean, I think in a best case scenario, those who leave ought to still feel welcome and loved in their tribes, and even if and when they come to church. And I know that that is the case in some cases. We're trying to really articulate here what the study is talking about, is this is the the situation with many, and in some cases it's a situation with um, those who go through the worst pain. But those people that go through the worst pain matter, they matter a lot. Yeah. Okay, so do you have anything else you want to say before we close?
1: No, I think we've touched on this very well.
0: Okay, so what we're going to do here is we are going to close this episode up. And the next episode, thank goodness, it's the last one. I'm not saying thank goodness. It's the last one because this has been, um, it's been a great thing to spend time with you guys on. However, I am saying thank goodness because the next episode is actually their recommendations. Right. What this team comes up with is not just, um, you know, dumping a big problem on the laps of, of people, but it's actually saying there are ways through this. Mm-hmm. They're not easy ways, but there are nonetheless ways that we can work on this. And so in our last of this series, episode number five, I'm sorry, episode, uh, part number five of Perfect. this series, um, we're going to walk you through the recommendations and kind of talk those with you. So we will see you next time. If you guys are enjoying this podcast, If you're enjoying this series, will you please, please share this with people in your world? Share it with your progressive friends, share it with your Orthodox friends. This might do them well to at least start (laughs) to understand a little bit of the part that they are inadvertently playing in um, the suffering and pain that we are going through in our little church um, community. Also, if you're willing to do so and have not yet, please pop onto iTunes or Spotify and rate and review this podcast. It helps a great deal in encouraging the analytics side of pod, the podcasting world to recommend us to other people that might find and be, uh, and benefit through the work that we're doing. And last but not least, we have, uh, two groups that are full and running right now. These are small groups that meet on zoom once a week, and they are offering, uh, the, the vision I have is to not only be able to synchronously be with you. Some of you guys who want support through this experience, but also my uh, big intention that I have is that I help you connect to each other so that you can have a community of people that knows exactly what you've been through and what you're going through so that we can also be really instrumental in helping each other heal and become closer um, to God and to our savior, Jesus Christ, through what we're going through, because this is after all part of the process of our own spiritual growth and development, but it is done better in community. So if this is something that interests you, please uh, feel free to email me at info at com, or you can catch me on Instagram at latterdaystrugglespodcast and I will see you there. Thanks for being here and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.